In his brand new book, Inventing George Washington, Edward G. Lengel shows how the former president and war hero continued to serve his nation on two distinct levels after his death. The public Washington evolved into an eternal symbol as the father of his country, while the private man remained at the periphery of the national vision for successive generations. As some exalted Washington, others sought to bring him down to earth, thus creating a series of competing mythologies that depicted Washington as every imaginable sort of human being. Dr. Lengel is editor-in-chief of the Washington Papers Project and a professor of history at the University of Virginia. He's the author of several books, including General George Washington, A Military Life, and This Glorious Struggle, George Washington's Revolutionary War Letters. He's appeared regularly on television and radio, including C-SPAN, CBS, and National Public Radio. In fact, if you were listening to All Things Considered this past Monday, President's Day, you might have heard an interview that he did on his topic for today. He's also a regular contributor to newspapers and magazines, including Military History and American Heritage. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Ed Langle, who will speak to us on Inventing George Washington, America's Founder in Myth and Memory. Good afternoon, and thanks to all of you for coming. We at the Washington Papers are in the business of preserving and transcribing and publishing all of Washington's letters. So you can imagine our surprise a number of years ago when we received a letter from George Washington, <laughs> written to us. And he was alive and well and living where else but in Cincinnati. Actually, it was a, a gentleman who claimed to be the reincarnation of George Washington, who uh, was eager and willing to offer us his help in understanding the great man's life. Well, sometime after that, a, a group of very well-dressed individuals came into our office, and our then uh, editor-in-chief, Bill Abbott, met with them and they said they had some materials and information pertaining to George Washington that they'd be delighted to share with us and to help us out. So they seemed to be very respectful, so respectable. So he invited them in and sat down uh, and they placed themselves near the uh, only exit to his uh, office so he couldn't get out without passing them. And at that time they revealed that they were spiritualists who had gotten in touch with Washington's spirit and were in daily conversation and willing to share information again about how Washington lived and who he was, so on and so forth. So he had to sit there and listen to them for a while before they finally left. And uh, a short time after that, I received an email uh, in my inbox, which was from a tabloid reporter in England and he revealed that a number of volumes of Washington's diaries, which had been thought lost, had been discovered in a Scottish castle. And these diaries were particularly fascinating because they revealed what uh, Washington had done at Valley Forge and how he had really been able to get through that terrible winter encampment. Well, he had received aid from a strange and uh, unknown source that there was a mysterious tribe of Indians living in the forests, 
and uh, Washington thought they looked kind of greenish, so he called them the greenskins. And they lived in a big aluminum teepee uh, out in the woods. Well, this reporter concluded with good reason that space aliens had helped Washington to win the Revolutionary War. Thus my inspiration for this book. It truly is amazing working at the Washington Papers on the one hand, and I've been there for 15 years now, and working with Washington's letters and getting to know how he lived, how he breathed day to day, what his everyday concerns were on the one hand, and on the other hand, the constant barrage of queries and questions and information volunteered to us by the general public. And a lot of it is, is really very useful. Uh, there are people who are actually still discovering Washington letters in their attics. There are people who have local information, who understand their local history, say from Alexandria or from Fredericksburg or for, from other areas where they really have you know, information that can be very valuable to us. But on the other hand, there are people who ask us questions like, uh, one person asked me, is it really true that Washington died in Russia on an engineering expedition? <laughs> or people, we get a lot of queries from the press uh, and uh, from others asking about, did Washington really say this? Is, is it really true that Washington said this? And there are so many Washington quotations floating around now and so many Washington legends floating around now, especially on the Internet, that it really intrigued me, where is all this stuff coming from? What about all these statements that Washington supposedly said about politics, about religion, about morality, about everything you can imagine? Now, what about these stories that he did or didn't do that thing? What about, for example, the story that's floating around now that he smoked marijuana? Uh, that he, you know, he grew it at Mount Vernon and he liked to smoke it for relaxation. Where, where does all this, where is this coming from? So it intrigued me. And, you know, of course, we all know the stories of Parson Weems. We all know the cherry tree story. And now here are these modern stories. And how do we create a link? What does it mean about us and our relationship with George Washington? Washington died on December 14th, 1799. And to us it seems like, and this is a Victorian rendition, a mid-19th century rendition of it, it seems like a very peaceful scene, actually. There's, there's a gentle sadness about it. It seems like he, he died peacefully at Mount Vernon and Americans shed a few collective tears. The great man has passed and we're now going to move on and live by his example. Actually, it was for most Americans a wrenching emotional moment. It was an event that cast us into a state of anguish. We were mortified, we were terrified. What's going to happen now? The great man has passed away. We're on the cusp of a new century into the 1800s. We are at war. A lot of people don't realize that when Washington died, he was in active military service 
as the commander in the field of our armed forces when we were expecting at any moment we might be invaded by France. It was a period called the Quasi-War, uh, when it was kind of a, an undeclared war between the United States and France, and there was this fear that the French were going to invade to impose their will. And remember, this was really only a short time after the Revolutionary War, less than 20 years. Most Americans could remember what war was like, and here it might come again. Washington had been put by President John Adams in charge of the army. And Washington left a lot of the day-to-day -day business in Alexander Hamilton's care, but still, he's the man. At every moment, at every crisis in our history, we had turned to George Washington. So when he died, this wave of emotion swept across the country as news began to spread very slowly uh, across the country and Americans learned that Washington was gone. There was this outpouring of grief and public memorials and eulogies remembering Washington and remembering who he was and thinking about his example to us. And there was this collective need somehow to bring Washington back. There was this yearning that somehow we have to fill this gulf, this hole that his passing has left for our nation. This space is open. Who do we put into this space? We need to bring Washington back. So the wish created in many ways the return of George Washington. And thus, our friend, Parson Weems. He wasn't really a parson. Uh, his name was Mason Locke Weems. He had known George Washington briefly in the 1780s. Uh, he had been a visitor at Mount Vernon. He had married into a branch of the family. And he had kind of, he was one of the many people who walked through in Mount Vernon and drove George and Martha crazy when they were still alive because there were so many visitors who were coming. And so he was one of them. So right after George Washington dies, Mason Locke Weems writes to his publisher named Matthew Carey in Philadelphia. And he says, Washington has just died. Millions of people are gaping to read something about him. We can make a lot of money. That was what he immediately saw. And Parson Weems, I'll keep calling him Parson Weems just uh, to be nice to him. Parson Weems saw the dollar bill in Washington long before Washington was on the dollar bill. <laughs> I'm glad, glad you like that. I made that up myself. That's, I think that's cute. But he did. He was, he was in this for money. He was in it to, to make gobs of money. But he also... To give him credit, he wanted to bring Washington to everyday Americans. Right after Washington died, there were a number of biographies of Washington that were published. The best known one was by John Marshall, which you can still uh, get now. Uh, is available. But it, it was a huge, ponderous biography. John Adams compared it to a mausoleum. And it's very dull, it's very hard to get through, it's very long, and it created a Washington who is very distant, who is that man of marble, that statue, that image. The genius of Parson Weems was that he understood that was not enough. The statue was not enough. The painting, the image, the face 
was not enough. Washington needed to be real for us. He needed to bring Washington to school children, to grandparents, to farmers, to pioneers, to workers, to everybody. And the best way he knew to do that was to tell a series of stories, a series of anecdotes about George that would make him into a real human being. It would make him into somebody that everybody could feel they could shake his hand, they could look him in the eye, they could tell him their story, and George Washington would understand. It's almost as if they could feel, I'm a farmer. I want to tell George Washington to share with him what it's like for me to be a farmer, what it's like to till the land, what it's like to raise children on a farm, all of my struggles. And George Washington would be just like me. He would say, yes, I understand. It created a sense of connection, not just with Washington, but with the country to make people feel that they were truly citizens of this country. So Parson Weems tells these stories, and they're very, they're very gentle. They're very easygoing. They're, you get this feeling of love that, that flows through them. So George Washington and his father, George is a little boy, and he's walking with his father and talking about the beauty of the, the trees and the plants and the creation they see about them. And they come across this, uh, this patch, this cabbage patch. And George looks at the cabbages and he says, wow, the cabbages have sprouted and they say the name George Washington because his father had planted them that way. And so the father goes on to say, let's talk about the creator. Let's talk about where we come from. And it's a very, again, it's a very gentle, he's not wagging his finger and swatting him and telling him what to think. He's, he's inspiring him to think. And the cherry tree story is the same thing. It's a very gentle story about George Washington learning the lesson of truthfulness. This painting that, that you see here is a satire created by a man named Grant Wood in the 1930s. It's called Parson Weems' Fable. This was a very different era, as you can see. It was a very cynical era. And it was a, a time when Americans were tended to look back on these legends with a lot of contempt and cynicism. And so he shows Parson Weems pulling back the curtain and seeing the father talking to the boy, and of course the boy has this ridiculous head <laughs> of an old man. But <laughs> the other element that's here that, that is unusual is the slaves in the background. And again, slaves, slaves were invisible, really, in the time after Washington's death in the 19th century. People didn't talk about them in the context of George Washington's life. And it wasn't really until the 1920s and the 1930s that people began to say, hey, look, here's this other aspect of who Washington was, and let's take a hard look at this and what this means. So this painting of Parson Weems' fable has at the same time a satirical element, but there's also a very serious element to it, too. It was a time of reappraising who George Washington was. But I'll get back to that in a moment. 
One of the things that helped Weems to be so successful and his followers in the 19th century in creating these stories and these images of George Washington was the tragedy of what happened to Washington's papers. Now, when George Washington was alive, he thought very seriously about the value of his papers. He called them, and this is a direct quotation, a species of public property sacred in my hands. When he was on his deathbed, he, in his last words, he asked that his will be brought out. He wanted to know that Martha was going to be taken care of. But almost his last words were, do you record and preserve my papers? They were very important to him. Well, after he died, the first thing that happened was that Martha burned their correspondence. There were only a few letters left, and uh, there are three of them. I discovered a fourth. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but all the rest were burned. Uh, there were two things. One is that this was common at the time in couples of these, these big planter families that when one of them died, the other one would burn their correspondence as a way of maintaining privacy. But I think Martha also wanted to feel that there was one part of George she would keep to herself because she had given him to the public, to the country, throughout his life. She had let him go to serve the nation. And I think she was feeling in some part of her mind, this is one piece of my husband that I will always keep for myself. In any case, their letters are gone. The worst thing happened after Martha died in 1802 that the descendants of the Washington family, beginning with Bushrod Washington and, and going down through the years in the early 19th century, were careless about the papers. And uh, they let pretty much anybody who wanted to come in and carry off any, any letters they wanted. They'd hand them out to friends. Uh, they'd give them to people who were writing uh, biographies of Washington. And in particular, my arch-villain, Jared Sparks. He was a historian from Harvard, and uh, he wanted to write the first edition of the writings of George Washington. It would only be selected letters, but he wanted to write a biography, and he believed Washington was a great man, the greatest man who ever lived. So he went to Mount Vernon, and he asked, can I have piles and piles and piles of Washington's letters? Take them up to Boston. I promise I'll give them back. Scout's honor. Well, he didn't. A few years later, he gave back a portion of what he had taken, and he kept the rest. Thus, several volumes of Washington's diaries have indeed disappeared and are lost forever, unless they were some that turned up in that Scottish castle. Uh, there were many other letters that were scattered all over the country and all over the world. Many of them were destroyed. Uh, we still find some that, that we have records in the 19th century. So many people looking at them, they literally fell apart. Uh, even now, people are selling letters on eBay. There's an unfortunate tendency some have, uh, unscrupulous manuscript dealers, they think they can earn more money if they cut these letters up into three-word sections, sell each of them for a couple thousand dollars, uh, and again, these letters are lost forever. So we have a lot to thank Jared Sparks and, and his friends for. The Washington Papers were 
deposited eventually in the Library of Congress, but what was there was only a portion of the original. And we found letters all over the world, as far away as Russia and Japan, uh, and in private homes all over the country. You saw the other George Washington letter before. This looks like Washington, but it isn't. This is a forgery by a man named Robert Spring. The loss of Washington's letters made it easy to create a new Washington because the document was scattered. It was no longer there. But another thing that it enabled was the growth of forgeries. Now, I mentioned Mason Locke Weems as being the guy who saw the dollar bill in George Washington. There were many, many, many who followed. In the 1830s and 1840s, George Washington letters and founding father letters became big business. People still had this yearning to touch them, to feel the founders, to feel that they were there. And there was this craze to own a piece of Washington and Washington's legacy. So there would be lockets of his hair spreading around. You think if all of these lockets were authentic, he probably had a huge mane <laughs> rather than, than just a regular head of hair. You know, all, all of this stuff. But people were very interested in getting letters, Washington letters. It wasn't long before the original letters became very hard to find and very expensive. So Robert Spring and his friends, unscrupulous forgers, hoaxers decided, hey, you know, I can just copy Washington's handwriting, make some kind of insignificant note, and sell it. They did the same thing with Franklin uh, later on in the 19th century. They do it with Robert E. Lee. They did it, did it with everybody. Uh, and so these forgeries are still floating all over the country. Worse were people who exploited others in the name of making money off of George Washington. And the first of those was P.T. Barnum. A lot of people don't realize that P.T. Barnum made his name, made his original fortune off of George Washington. What he did in the 1830s is he went off uh, to Kentucky and he found an elderly slave named Joyce Heth. He bought her, brought her back to the East Coast, and he coached her, told her, you are now 161 years old. You were George Washington's nanny. And you're going to get up on stage in New York City, in Philadelphia, and other major cities, and you're going to talk about what it was like to be with young George on the farm at Mount Vernon. So he coached her with stories like the cherry tree, other stories from, uh, from Parson Weems, put her up on stage, and then had her give her spiel over and over. He worked her 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, up to 20 hours a day. Eventually, she began to break down and collapse. People would come in. He'd have her in a room. Kids would come in and start mocking her and trying to get her upset where she would start cursing and eventually completely broke her down and she died. Well, that wasn't enough for our good friend P.T. Barnum. He knew that people were talking about how he was a hoaxer, that none of this had actually happened. So he had her put on stage, her body, 
and had a doctor dissect her publicly. And knowing very well the doctor was meant to see, was she really 161 years old? The doctor dissected her, proclaimed, no, she was only in her 80s. Everybody started yelling and hooting and hollering, and P.T. Barnum was joking and laughing with the rest of them. He thought it was, thought it was hilarious. To move on to a somewhat more pleasant subject, Sally Fairfax. In the 19th century, in the mid-19th century and up to the late 19th century, publishers began to understand the feminine market for books that women loved to read and that books that were written appealing specifically to women as they thought and to women's interests would make a lot of money. And so Americans, again, there's still the same fascination with Washington and women, just like men, are very interested in the founder and want to understand him and want to feel like he could sympathize with them. So this interest developed in Washington's love life. Chief among these interests was Sally Fairfax. Now Sally Fairfax was a member of the wealthiest, most powerful family in Virginia, the Fairfax family. She was married to one of Washington's best friends. Well, it was rumored that George and Sally had had some kind of an affair. Uh, and in fact, it was, uh, there was a letter that popped up that Washington had written to Sally just before he married Martha and he recalls a thousand tender passages that passed between us in the past. And some people were really fascinated by this and scandalized by it, and they began to develop these stories that Washington was really a ladies' man, and that before he married Martha and after he married Martha, he had all these affairs, all these love affairs, and he became really a very fascinating romantic figure. But the other angle to that was what happened to Martha. What happened to her image in the 19th century? Martha became the stereotypical Victorian grandmother. And she, worse than that, people began to claim that she was ugly, that she was grouchy, that she was always nagging George, that she was stupid, that she was really a terrible, terrible old shrew and that George couldn't stand her. He only married her for money, but he sought solace in the arms of other women, such as Sally Fairfax. Well, none of these stories were true. Now, it may well be that before George got married to Martha that he had some episodes with other women. It may be that he had had a dalliance with Sally before he got married to Martha. But there is not one scrap of evidence that he was ever unfaithful to Martha during their life, during their married life together. In fact, all the evidence shows to the contrary. First of all, that when they got married, yes, Martha was wealthy, but she was also a beautiful young woman, a widow, but still a beautiful young woman. That yes, she was not formally educated, but she was still very intelligent. And that even more, during their life together, they began to depend on each other. And as you see through the Revolutionary War, at every crisis moment of the Revolution, places like Valley Forge, George needed Martha to be there 
and she came and she shared much of the war with him. I was talking about the loss of Martha's letters. In some ways, Martha did herself a disservice because the loss of her letters led people to speculate what was really going on behind the scenes. I'm kind of proud of myself because I found a number of years ago a fourth letter. There were three known to survive. I discovered a fourth. It was a note. It was written during the Revolutionary War on the back of a letter from George's stepchild, Jackie Custis, to George. And on the back was this note. And the note said, my love. I wrote to you in my last letter about the silver cup that I purchased. Here's what the cup weighed. Seems like an insignificant little note. Nobody would really paid attention to it. But my love in this casual note intrigued me. And we found out it was Martha's handwriting. Martha writing to George at a casual moment about an everyday thing and calling him my love. A small piece of evidence that they really did truly love each other. The other aspect of Washington in the 19th century that grew was the image of a pious Washington, the image of a Christian Washington. Now this was important to people even immediately after Washington died and eulogists and preachers and parsons would write, would talk about Washington and talk about him as being an upstanding Christian man who was an example to our nation. In the mid-19th century and late 19th century, which was a very pious time, when Americans felt very seriously and very strongly about their faith and their religion, and they also felt passionately about George Washington, it was almost inevitable that the two would connect and that the image of Washington as the pious Christian, the man who prayed daily, would become very compelling to people. But as part of this need, part of this passionate, passionate need to believe that this was true, inevitably falsehoods slipped in because people wanted to believe them. The image of Washington praying in the snow at Valley Forge was originated by Parson Weems in one of the later additions to his biography of George Washington. There was a story that when Washington was at Valley Forge that a Quaker named uh, Isaac Potts had happened upon Washington uh, out in the woods and he had seen him kneeling in the snow and praying for deliverance for his army. And that this Quaker who had, before this, he had been completely neutral in the Revolutionary War, he had not wanted to take sides, that he was inspired by this, not only in his own religious faith, but also he decided if a man like this can be in his knees and pray in the snow for this cause, it must be a good cause. So he became converted to the revolutionary cause. This is a story that, that Parson Weems made very compelling, but it was a story that evolved over time. And new versions of it developed and new stories developed. And so all kinds of dozens, hundreds of stories entered into our folklore of Washington being discovered in prayer. This is the newest and 
most popular rendition of Washington kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge. And I could give a whole lecture about how that image of Washington kneeling in the snow developed over time. Now the truth is, there's really no evidence for this ever happening, for Washington kneeling in the snow, but that hasn't stopped it for being a, from being a powerful image. President Ronald Reagan loved to refer to this. He said the image of Washington kneeling in the snow at Valley Forge is the most sublime image in our nation's history. So more and more stories develop. There's a story that, uh, and they got to the point of being rather ridiculous. There's a story of uh, Washington praying in his tent uh, during the Revolutionary War and that it was a very special time for him. Everybody knew, don't bother the general when he's praying. Well, Nathaniel Green, much to his sorrow, blundered into the tent. George Washington stood up and fired his pistol at him. <laughs> Fortunately, he missed, but uh, Nathaniel Green was so terrified that he ran away and didn't, didn't ever bother him at prayer again. Uh, the, and this was a story that spread throughout the 19th century. Many people believed it. Another story that was very popular that developed was the story of George Washington's baptism. And this is, again, this is a story that there was no solid evidence that anything like this ever happened, but it developed and gathered strength over the time in the 19th century. People passionately wanted to believe it. And they spoke about Washington first being baptized. The original story was, again, this happened at Valley Forge, in the winter at Valley Forge. <laughs> that Washington went to a, uh, a parson and he said, I've been convinced of the truth of God's word and I'd like you to baptize me in the water. Uh, and of course, like many stories of this type, Washington usually says, now this has got to be private. I don't want anybody to see this. So there are no witnesses, but it supposedly happened. I like to imagine what it was like really going into the Schuylkill River uh, in January of 1778, climbing out. The story later developed and changed, and it was shifted to a somewhat warmer location, and the Potomac River it was said he was baptized there. This is a Reverend John Gano uh, supposedly did it, but then it was moved back north again, and somebody said, no, it was in the Hudson that it happened. All of these reflect, again, a powerful and passionate need to feel that Washington was one of us. If we are believing Christians and we believe in our nation, there's this powerful need to believe that Washington was with us, that he would understand, that he would support us. And now this image of Washington the Christian has again become compelling. There, quotes that, uh, that Glenn Beck likes to use, uh, Sean Hannity, uh, that Washington supposedly said, it, it is impossible rightly to govern the world without God in the Bible. And this quotation is all over the place. You can find it on the internet. There's no evidence that Washington ever said it or ever wrote it, and it was most likely made up in the 19th century by somebody else. But again, there's this need to believe it. Now, what was Washington? Was he a Christian? What did he really believe? is a very difficult question to answer. We can be certain on the one hand he was not an atheist, he was not a deist, he was also on the other hand not an evangelical Christian. He was not powerfully interested in the theology and in the forms of the Christian religion. He did go to church, 
but he was very careful not to take communion and not to kneel. Why he felt that way, we don't exactly know. He didn't mention Jesus Christ in his correspondence, and he didn't talk about God on his deathbed. I believe he was a very moral man, a very virtuous man. He was influenced by the Stoics. He took his, his feelings about morality very seriously. And indeed, if you had asked him, are you a Christian, he might well have said yes. But his sense of Christianity is very difficult to get a hold of. We just know it wasn't on one of the extremes. Well, that's a very powerful image of Washington. And this is another powerful image of Washington. Developing in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, as the Washington mythology gathers strength and develops and the centennial in 1876 of the revolution, the Declaration of Independence, and beyond that, Americans became fascinated with historic homes and historic buildings. Well now, you know, if you own a restaurant or if you own a historic inn or bed and breakfast, there's one thing you need to succeed. You have to have a ghost. In the 19th century, you had to have George Washington. You had to say that Washington slept here. It became a very kind of powerful uh, tourist attraction. So people all over the country in these, these old buildings would put Washington slept here in the windows. And sure enough, it attracted people. They'd get to the point they'd hand out souvenirs. They would claim that after Washington tumbled out of bed that morning in the Revolutionary War, they couldn't bring themselves to make the bed again. So the bedclothes are all tumbled and everything. Say, this is just how he left it. They also enjoyed uh, displaying Washington's chamber pots. <laughs> they were a little bit more coy about that, but, but they did do it. It got to the point in the early 20th century that the Washington mania became Washington kitsch. It got really out of control. Washington cigar wrappers, Washington apples, Washington ceremonial hatchets that he chopped down the cherry tree with, supposedly. It's all over the place. Inevitably, there is a reaction. After the First World War and we move into the 1920s and the 1930s, it's a very, very different time from the 1800s. It's a time when people believe they needed to overturn the old ways of thinking, the old ways of doing things. All of the old ideas about patriotism and about God and about morality, throw them out the window. World War I has shown that all of these just lead to destruction. We have to find a new way. In the 1920s, in America, people began to feel that Washington was part of that old way. And in entered Rupert Hughes, shown here. Rupert was a Hollywood mogul and author. Uh, he, with another man named W.A. Woodward, decided that they would debunk Washington as being representative of the old ways. They are quite cynical about it. Bunk, bunkum, there are stories about where that originated from. It was popular in the 1920s. It was associated with Henry Ford and how he liked to say bunk or bunkum to mean nonsense. Well, W.A. Woodward and Rupert Hughes said, well, 
they looked at troops being deloused in World War One, and they said if troops can be deloused, Washington can be debunked. That's where the word debunk comes from. That's where it started. And they didn't just try to destroy the Washington myths. They tore Washington down to the gutter. They claim that he was a gin-swilling, cigar-smoking champion cursor who uh, had deformed hands and was incredibly ugly. He looked like an ape, and he pawed at any woman who came his way, and they were always jilting him, that he blundered his way through the Revolutionary War. Uh, all of this stuff got completely out of, out of control, and the reaction was Washington was torn down so far, and they were so successful in tearing him down that Americans lost interest. Even after the 1932 bicentennial of Washington's birth, it was a, a, you know, a gala affair. People talked about Washington a lot, but it was always as a flat, two-dimensional image, as a Washington who really doesn't have any being to him. It's interesting in World War II and the Cold War, you never see Washington in propaganda. You don't see him in movies except in one really bad movie I talked about in my book called When the Redskins Wrote in 1951. He's gone. He becomes this very kind of distant, two-dimensional figure, and Americans lose interest in him. Enter James Thomas Flexner in the 1960s, author of still one of the best-selling biographies of Washington ever known. Flexner decided that Washington would be his indispensable man, but Flexner became Washington's indispensable man because Flexner breathed life back into Washington. But he did it in kind of an unscrupulous way. Flexner was a great writer. He was a great storyteller. And he decided, let's not just rely on the documents anymore. I can start telling stories to make him come alive. So he would start with a document that said, a letter. Washington was sick. He came home from the French and Indian War. Big deal. Flexner writes a story from that of Washington sagging on his horse, riding up to the doors of Mount Vernon, sliding out of the saddle, staggering to the door and pounding on it and crawling up the stairs to his room, throwing himself on his bed, and then a letter arrives from Sally Fairfax, and he vaults out of his bed, and suddenly <laughs> he's full of energy again. This was, this was Flexner's gift. He was very much like a Mason Locke Weems of the 20th century. He was a storyteller, and he was very successful. As we enter into the era of Ronald Reagan, and Flexner's biography is turned into a miniseries on television with Barry Bostwick. And Reagan is talking about George Washington. A whole new era of George Washington mythology begins. And a whole new era of founding father mythology begins. The founders are very popular now. And George Washington is very popular now. And I'm going to end on this. Washington is renowned, as he should be, in exhibits such as this one at Mount Vernon. And Mount Vernon's new visitor center and orientation center, educational center, is absolutely amazing. 
If you haven't been there, you need to go. They do a wonderful job of making Washington again into a living, breathing human being who's, who lived an action-filled life, who had all kinds of exciting things, who can still continue to be a leader and be authentic at the same time. But around this George Washington, this man on horseback, this man of character, still swirl dozens and hundreds and thousands of myths and stories. Stories that we believe often because we want to believe them. Because they seem to bring Washington to us. They seem to bring him into our lives. Now, the one lesson this shows is that we still need the founders. We still need George Washington. All of us, we're still fascinated by him. And we still want him not to be a marble statue, not to be a two-dimensional image. We want him to be real. Is the mythology a bad thing? I leave that really to you to, to decide. It can be funny. It can be infuriating. Uh, all the false quotations, all the false stories, they can make you laugh like the space alien story, or they can make you angry like the false story that he had a child with a slave. Or the story that he smoked marijuana is, you know, ultimately all ridiculous and, and, and annoying because it's not true. But do they help us to feel inspired? Do they help us to feel interested in Washington as not just, you know, some papers, some dry, dusty papers, but as somebody who's still part of our society? If you see Washington at Mount Vernon and you see him on horseback, it looks like we don't need to worry because Washington is still with us. Thank you. I'll be happy to take questions. I believe that uh, our folks here are, will be calling on people and handing the microphone. Do you have any estimate of how much of uh, Jeff uh, Washington's papers are are missing, uh, percentage-wise? Well, we have at the Washington Papers uh, only copies, but we have identified copies of 140,000 documents. I would say that the number of documents that are missing or have been lost or are still out there undiscovered probably in the realm of 20 to 30,000 uh, or possibly more. Uh, it's, it's hard to say, but it's a good percentage. Like I said, several volumes of his diaries are still gone. Uh, we enter periods in his correspondence, like now we're working in the Revolutionary War, where there are just huge gaps. Everything is gone. And uh, so there's quite a bit still out there. With all the books about George Washington, how can one be sure that what they're reading is really authentic or true? That's a really, really good question. Well, uh, well, if you know, you know if I wrote it. Eh. <laughs> Tru truthfully, though, uh, there are many authors out there who can write beautifully and be very engaging who also make a strong effort to do the research 
and to base what they're saying on actual facts. I think Ron Chernow does a wonderful job of that. He, he really tried very hard to make sure that he was basing what he said on actual documents and actual tr truths. But he's also a beautiful writer. Uh, so you look at their notes, you look at their bibliography. I hate this trend now. So many history books, they get rid of the notes and the bibliography and the index because they think somebody will look at that and say, oh, this is going to be a boring academic book. Uh, if that stuff is not there, if the author is not saying where they got their stories from, then be kind of wary of it. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean that it's true. The trunk of letters found in the bank in Alexandria several years ago, within the last 10 years. Do you happen to know what happened to it and who has the contents? Unfortunately, I don't know uh, what, what has happened with that. We know. Uh, you know? Okay. They figured it out. They're here. Okay. They're, they're, that's, you know, it's an interesting question because these types of things are still turning up in attics. They're still turning up in old trunks. Uh, but even when that happens doesn't mean necessarily that they're authentic. Uh, there's a quote-unquote George Washington prayer book that was discovered in an old trunk in the 19th century uh, and sold by a very reputable auction house named Stan Henkels as being George Washington's prayer book that he supposedly read every day, but it was a hoax. It was a forgery. Uh, so these discoveries are being made, and they're, they're wonderful, and they're fascinating, but we still have to look at them very carefully to see if they're real or not. Uh, what was uh, Mr. General President Washington's general position on the uh, Native Americans here? How did he relate to them, and uh, what was his philosophy about them? The question about Washington's philosophy on Native Americans is a, a very sensitive one, and there are some people who have published books and articles recently claiming that Washington was brutal and wanted to exterminate the Indians and uh, hated them. That's not true. Uh, Washington did have a high regard for Native Americans. Uh, he valued their culture, and he believed that they would be great allies as they were great fighters during the Revolutionary War. Uh, so he got to know as he was on the frontier, as a young man working on the frontier, he got to have experiences with Indians, to meet them, to learn about their culture. Yes, he didn't understand them entirely. Uh, and yes, he felt sometimes the only way to deal with them is by force. During the Revolutionary War, he sent out something called Sullivan's Expedition to put down the Iroquois Confederacy, and did so quite brutally. But uh, Washington had kind of an ambivalent view of Indians, uh, but, but very interesting. Uh, one of the stories of Washington was that he had copied down the rules of civility and carried it around with him. Is that so? And if so, uh, were those a copy ever uh, captured in the documents? The rules of civility, Washington's rules of civility, this is another thing. When people first read them, they assumed he had written them himself when he was a young man, that he had actually made them up. There are dozens of them. 
that talk about everything from how to speak well and how to be polite to things like don't spit into the fire and don't scratch under your arms. Uh, it turned out what it had actually come from is that Washington copied them from an old, I believe, 16th century Jesuit prayer book or, or book of morals that he actually hadn't made them up himself. People still debate, did Washington write these because he believed you should follow them? Or did he write them as a penmanship exercise just to learn how to develop his hand? I tend to believe it was a bit more of the penmanship side than the moral side. Uh, but there's plenty of room for debate. I do think, though, there's no question that moral rules and principles of behavior and etiquette were extremely important to Washington. I actually have two questions. <laughs> one is, uh, recently I talked to two different people and one said Washington was a, an atheist, the other said he's a deist. Um, is there evidence to say that what his religious beliefs were and what do you believe they were? And the other question is, how do you authenticate that the documents are genuinely from Washington? Oh, I'm sorry, the question was over here. Um, how do I feel about Washington's beliefs? As I read his letters, uh, and I've read an awful lot of them now over 15 years, the thing that I see creeping through is the influence of Stoicism and the ideals of Stoicism, which also had much to do with Christianity. And the sense that there was an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful providence, as he called it, uh, who governed or helped to direct the actions of men. Now, this wasn't entirely fatalistic. He didn't think, you know, we just have to bow down and accept how things are predestined to happen. But he believed that each man, each woman, was given a choice of roles in life to follow. They were given a, a choice of duties and responsibilities to follow. He felt that for him, as for other men, providence had laid out a path for him of duty, of responsibility to country, to family, and to everything else. He was actually a very idealistic thinker, and people don't quite get that. There's a lot of talk that he was a pragmatist. He was an idealist. He believed in sacrificing himself. How he felt about his faith and how he felt about his relationship with God is something we'll never be able to know for sure. We can say that the forms of the religion were something, you know, of going to church daily, of saying daily prayers, were not something that he really followed carefully. Uh, there's no evidence that he said prayers daily. Uh, there's no evidence. We do know he read the Bible because he quotes from it from times. Did he read the Bible regularly? There's no evidence that he ever did. Uh, did he respect people of different faiths? Absolutely. And he did believe that religion was important. The free exercise and practice of religion was important to a free and ordered society. And he went to Protestant churches. He went to Catholic churches. Uh, he went to synagogue. He attended different faith uh, you know, uh, liturgies. But he didn't actively participate. Uh, so I think we need to keep him away from the extremes on one side or the other. The the Masonic Temple in Alexandria, can you comment on the, um, the contribution of the Masons in uh, making the mythic stature of George Washington? Sure. 
That's a really good question. Uh, Washington as a Mason, Masonry was important to Washington. He was a Mason. Uh, he followed, uh, he attended the Masonic ceremonies. He was an active participant. But it's important to remember that Freemasonry was extremely important in the 18th century as an entry into social life, political life. Uh, really, if you were anywhere in the upper tier of society, you were in politics or governance, you had to be a Mason. It, it was a very important fraternity. Uh, and if you weren't a member, you were going to have trouble getting by. So part of it was a, you know, something he had to do. It does appear that he actually enjoyed it as well. Uh, but how he felt deeply about the tenets of Freemasonry, we don't really know. However, the Masons, since Washington's death, obviously they led his funeral. His funeral was a Masonic funeral. Uh, and since Washington's death, the Masons have been very active in promoting Washington as one of them. And in some of their efforts, they have created, just like everybody else, a kind of Washington mythology as Washington as a Mason, as supposedly being the only primary thing in his life, uh, which it wasn't. It was one of many things in his life. 